Thanks, Trevor. Hey, good morning, everyone. How are we? Doing all right? All right. It's good to see you. We are, uh, thank you for just uh, for allowing my family and I to, to get away last week, put my mug up on the big screen and just videotaped, uh, uh, videotaped, who does that anymore? Videoed a, recorded a, uh, a sermon last week. Um, and so you guys just grace, graciously uh, engaged. Um, whenever the word is taught, whenever it's sung, whenever it's prayed, we have much to benefit from. So I just, I appreciate your humility and your graciousness to us. Uh, we are in the fourth week in a series called Gospel Basics. And Basics is designed to circle us around three themes that we are all about and have been about since the very beginning as a church family. The gospel, that is Jesus himself, community, life with one another, and also mission. That is life uh, aimed at those who are not yet wrapped up into the, to the family of God, looking at how we can leverage our time and our resources and our words, our proclamation uh, for the good of other people around us. So um, last week and the week before, we've been talking about these three benefits the gospel brings to us. These three, the, um, the gospel brings power to the Christian. So we call it gospel power. And in the past, we, uh, we looked at this phrase, um, this past tense benefit of gospel power. It's that we have been saved, have been, past tense, we have been saved from the penalty of sin because of Jesus' life and death applied to us. And so two weeks ago, I asked this question, when we, when we start to truly grasp what Jesus Christ has spared us from, and not only that, but what he's also delivered us into, what begins to show up in our lives? So if you are here for that, or if you have kind of a grasp, I'm asking you right now, when we begin to grasp what we've been delivered from, and also what we have been delivered into by Jesus, what starts to show up in our lives? What kind of fruitfulness, attitudes, presence starts to show up in our lives? I'm asking you the question. You have a sense of peace. Not just wringing our hands over things that we can't change in our past. What else begins to show up in the life of a Christian who grasps all that Jesus has done for us? Patience, correction, I heard. Gratitude starts to overflow in our lives. We can then begin to extend that, actually, to other people, right? And peace and other things. Anything else on your mind? What begins to just kind of bubble up in our lives? Hope. I think I heard hope. Yeah. Joy. Yeah, we're no longer governed by the circumstances in the present. But we can, um, we, we can rejoice in our suffering, even in the midst of great grief. So last week, uh, I, uh, we were looking at the present tense uh, benefit that the gospel brings to us, this gospel power. And it, it's phrased like this, we are being saved from the power of sin because of Jesus' resurrection and glorification, or his resurrection and ascension. What this means is that sin is starting to lose its grasp on us, and we can start to do things and live in a way that pleases God himself. And so when we start to truly grasp these resources that, that Jesus is offering us to draw upon in the here and now, and we are okay with being honest about our sin because Jesus is present with us and he's bridging the gap, what begins to show up? in our lives. 
As we grasp this present power in the here and now, what begins to show up in our lives? If you were here last week, what, what, what was your response to that message? Humility. Humility. What else? Freedom. Okay. You have a sense of freedom. Because now you can see yourself for who you are. We can see ourselves honestly. We can assess. We don't have to perform our way out of it or pretend and cover ourselves up. But God knows us truly to the bottom. We can then look at ourselves to the bottom and understand that he loves us there. Anything else on your mind? Okay, you have the power to forgive. You're drawing upon Christ's power through the Holy Spirit in our lives now, recognizing that I have been forgiven, I am being forgiven, and therefore I can move forward even when people have trespassed against me or harmed me with words or actions or attitudes or absence, whatever it might be. We can begin to forgive other people. This week we're looking at the future tense benefit of the gospel, gospel power, that through faith we will be saved from the presence of sin because of Jesus's return. We will be saved from the presence of sin. Just take a moment and consider what you would be like sinless. No fault. Never splashing up with your dysfunction on another person. It's hard for us to, it's hard for me, especially when I ask myself that question, to get my mind around that. But why does it matter for us? We need to rehearse these truths. Why does it even matter that one day in the future, a future time that we have not yet realized, we will be saved from the presence of sin? Let me ask the question like this. What is your assessment of 2020 so far? How are you feeling about the year 2020? Uh, I'm, I'm looking through my social media feed this weekend, and it's this juxtaposition of cute families alongside commentary on face masks and Black Lives Matter commentary or political commentary to the right or to the left. It's a mix of friends doing what they love. It's a mix of these occasional pics of delicious food, right, in your social media feeds, and commentary on pedophilia and other things that are now racing through our news cycles. Also, uh, the death of saints. J.I. Packer, a great theologian, went to be with the Lord this weekend, as well as uh, John Lewis, a, a, a representative who was a, an icon in the civil rights movement. And that's just this weekend. That's just what I'm kind of gathering, kind of the big items in my feeds this weekend. And, and what that led me to understand was that there, there, there are these echoes and remnants of Eden that are still present in our reality. I love this. Uh, friends doing what they love. Good food. Good things happening. Good commentary. Truth being presented. But there's also this sinister shadow that seems to always be looming. Kind of threatening with darkness and storm and fury. And I hate this. In the words of an everyday theologian, Larry the Cable Guy, the world needs fixing. Right? We all sense this. Like, our world needs to be fixed, like something is off. 
And I've recognized, as I've been assessing this in myself too, I've recognized there's this intense, like um, an intensifying craving in me as well. I have this desire to escape into the mountains. Like I've noticed it predominantly this summer where I, I, I am craving water and the, and the sight of glistening water and alpine landscapes. I'm craving um, such quiet that when the breeze rustles the trees, I'm aware of it immediately and I can feel it on my skin immediately. Where I'm hearing nature and, and birds and I'm just more aware of my present surroundings, seeing and interacting with wildlife. I, I'm, I'm craving this, uh, th this space, I think, might be how I would describe it, where darkness that is brought on by an intensely dysfunctional humanity is held back. And I recognize that I'm a part of this intensely dysfunctional humanity as well. It's almost like I was thinking of the words, uh, it, it's almost like I feel claustrophobic to societal chaos right now. Like there's this sense in me that just wants to like break out with this societal chaos. And as I'm meditating on this and thinking about it, I think what's actually happening here is the Holy Spirit, I think he is indicating that I am living knee deep in a form of this world that I was not created for. I'm troubled. I'm craving things being put back together. And I think this longing in me and this longing that I am in, I'm seeing in you as you're listening and agreeing, I think it's an echo of Eden. I think it's a remnant of the garden where we're saying things aren't right. And we're asking questions like, will it get better? Because on some level, it doesn't feel like things are going to get better. It feels like things are getting worse in an intensifying way. And so in these times, in times where we feel this, deep in our bones, like in our physiology, we need hope that is not dependent on our circumstances. We need hope that is not dependent on the news cycles. We need hope that is not dependent on political kingdoms and power. We need hope that transcends these things and holds fast. And this is why Jesus' promised return is good news for us. Jesus has promised that he will return, and it's good news for us. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, he's speaking to one of his apostles, John, who records Jesus' words, and he says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. He was speaking to a real felt need in the moment. Their hearts were troubled. Our hearts are troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Just trust me. Aim your faith at me. He says, in my Father's house, in my Father's dominion, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you... Jesus' promise is this, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That where I am, you may be also. So according to Jesus, why will he return? According to that passage, according to what he's just said here, why will Jesus return? He's going to return to get us that where he is, we might also be. Where we will be in physical union with him. 
This same uh, uh, apostle, John, he was writing a letter to either individuals or house churches. It's toward the end of your New Testament. In, John, in 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 2, he's writing to these saints. He's saying, Beloved, we are God's children now. We're God's children in the here and now through faith. And what we will be, what we will become, has not yet appeared. Meaning we are not yet glorified. But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. According to that passage, what's the benefit of Jesus' return with regard to our struggle against sin or struggle with sin? It's that we will be made like Jesus. We will be sinless. This is promise from God to us. Now, when we start to get our minds, or try to get our minds around what, it, what it's like to be sinless, we just, like, our minds explode a bit and, and, and just creak and kind of groan under the weight of that kind of a thought. I don't know what it will be like to be sinless. Does this mean that I'll be sinless like Jesus? Yes, it does. But not only sinless, it means that I will be, and you, who through faith in Christ are his brother and you are saved and redeemed by him, not only sinless, but glorious. Glorious. In its most simple form, the story that God is writing is that you and I will be more truly human than we have ever been in that moment. What this means is no aging, no aging parents, no injuries, no unhealthy patterns in how you relate to others and how others relate to you. No grief, no tears, no death, ultimately. These are big categories. There's far more benefit uh, even than that. Um, in a sermon uh, or a series of sermons called The Weight of Glory, an author from the 1940s and 50s uh, from England, he said, his name is C.S. Lewis, he was trying to anticipate the reality of resurrected humans resurrected, glorified people. And he said, there are no mere mortals. You've never met a mere mortal. Every person is destined for Im immortality in some sense. And he, he went on to say, the most uninteresting person that you talk to may, may be one day a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship them. If we were to see ourselves or one another in a glorified state, what C.S. Lewis is saying, we would likely be strongly tempted to bow down to them. Not that we should. No way. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying that this glory will be something altogether different than what we see and experience in the here and now. I've been saying this over the, the course of this series, that salvation is far more comprehensive than just going to heaven when we die. We tend to think that Jesus died for your sins, and that's what salvation is all about. It is, but there's more. Salvation is far more comprehensive than just going to heaven when we die. The promise of Jesus' return, it doesn't introduce a transition for us into heart-playing, half-naked, cloud-surfing baby people. We've seen these depictions, right? I don't know, I need to do some history there. I don't know like where this concept was introduced, but it's theologically in total error. 
It's not what the Bible teaches at all, the afterlife or life with God will be like. What Jesus' return, what, 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 it, what this promised return introduces for us is our transition into sinless, glorified, eternal humans living in the midst of a new earth and new heavens. I want to say that again. His promised return introduces our transition into sinless, glorified, eternal humans living in the midst of a new earth and new heavens. And so when Jesus returns, the scriptures don't promise that we will go up to heaven for an immaterial existence, but actually the promise that heaven will come down. The kingdom of God will reign with us here and transform and renew our material world. God promises that he will remake us as he remakes his world, as he makes his world new. And this work for those of us who are believers in Christ, are followers of Jesus Christ, it's in progress. It's already begun. His renewal work in us has already begun. The penalty for our sin, it's overcome completely through Christ's work and by faith that we extend in all that he has done. We are accepted and we are swept up into the purposes of God. And now the Holy Spirit, he is living in us as a guarantee of this coming result. And so God's Spirit, you need to hear this clearly, his renewing Spirit is diligently at work in you and I in the midst of our broken landscape. Turn to Romans chapter 8, if you would, uh, verses 18 through 30. I didn't get a page number in the Black Bible, um, but if somebody sees it in the Black Bible, just call out the page number. Feel free to grab one of those Black Bibles around the room. I'd love for you to be interacting with this text as I read through it. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, just go to the front of one of those black Bibles. You'll see the table of contents there. Romans is the, the fifth or Matthew, Mark, Luke, fifth book in the New Testament. Had to do some math there. 888, page 888 in the black Bibles. This is God's word. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, Paul writes, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, or for the, the, this realized adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This means the Holy Spirit is entering into our suffering, entering into our pain, interceding for us, groaning himself. 
And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his good purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, conformed to Christ's likeness in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice the tense of all of those verbs. Past. Predestined. Foreknew. Called justified. We've been spending a lot of time talking about justification as a church. That moment of belief when by faith we say, Jesus, we understand that you have lived in our place and died for our sins and promise us new life. That's the moment of justification. It's a legal declaration by the Father that our unrighteousness has been placed on Jesus Christ and his righteousness has forever, hear that word, forever been placed upon you. Justified. You and I are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. But notice the next word, glorified, in the past tense, which means that our glorification is as sure as our justification is. This is evidence, according to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He is guaranteeing that you and I will realize this, that we will be glorified. We, when Christ returns, he will come for you, the person in your seat. Notice also here how the scripture just affirms the, the prevalence of suffering. It affirms suffering in our world, but also reveals God's promise to heal and to restore all of it. The future tense benefit of our salvation, that we will be saved from the presence of sin because of Jesus' return, it can be summed up in one word, hope. Where there isn't hope, where, you, where, where a person has no hope, you will, you will be hard-pressed to find flourishing or wellness. Hope is a word that's used 77 times in the New Testament, which is a fair amount of times. And what, it, what hope means in its biblical understanding is an anticipation, a favorable and confident expectation, a forward look to something that we have not yet seen with assurance. And when hope is mentioned in the midst of your New Testament, it regularly comes smack dab in the middle of intense suffering. That's where the word is embedded. And Christ-centered, so what, what I mean is that Christ-centered hope, like a hope that is, uh, that is looking for the return of Jesus Christ, it's not unrealistic. It's not unthinking. It's not absent-minded. It's not simplistic at all. It's shockingly sober in regards to suffering and difficulty that we experience in this world. And so if you look at Romans 8, 18, the first sentence here of this passage that we've just read, the Apostle Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is writing this as a sufferer. He's writing this 
from chains. His death is impending. If a person says this to you who hasn't suffered much, we're not likely to listen all that much to what they're saying. But if a person who has suffered a great deal makes a statement like this, it's likely, at least at some level, to get our attention, and we're likely to lean forward and to listen in here. Paul, um, about a year earlier, wrote to the Corinthians, and if you just go right in your New Testament, past 1 Corinthians and then into 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, he just gives a record. I'm not going to give commentary on this. I'm just going to read it quickly. He gives a record of what he has suffered here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in the second half of verse 23. He says, I've had far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. He's been whipped 195 times is what he's saying. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, the Jews, danger from Gentiles, those who are non-Jews, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers or false teachers, in toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all other things, there's the daily pressure on me, Paul writes, of my anxiety for all of the churches. Going on to verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying when I say this to you. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and I escaped his hands. Paul is writing that these present sufferings are not worth to be are not worth being compared to this present this, this coming glory he's writing as a sufferer this is my point god is not flippant about your suffering he's not flippant at all he sees it he enters into it that romans 8 says the holy spirit enters in with groans like in childbirth any suffering that we see in the scriptures is as real as anything that we experience today. And their groans yesterday reflect our groans today. So in verse 23 of chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, Paul says, and, we, and not only that the creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait, for, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so through famine and political upheaval and wars and genocide and disease and untimely death, demonic oppression, infighting, murder, betrayal, racism, natural disasters, sexual offense, abuse. It was all around them like it's all around us. And it's not just around us, but it's in us. We're groaning. Paul says, we ourselves groan inwardly. So I want to ask you the question, where in your actual life are the places where you are groaning? I'm not asking you to tell me or to tell us. I'm just asking you to identify those privately 
between you and the Lord to identify those for yourself? Where are the places where you're, you're groaning, where you have nagging feelings? You have nagging worries and concerns, anxiety, conflict, grief, pain, loneliness. Like where, where does it hurt? Think about those things. Name them just for yourself. Just name what that is. It's hurting in you. Just hold on to that. A man named James Stockdale was a, a, a Navy uh, prisoner of war in Vietnam uh, for about seven and a half years. He was imprisoned in what some of you may uh, understand as the, or know as the Hanoi Hilton. Um, he was the top-ranking uh, official in this prisoner of war camp. And so he got a lot of attention from his captors that other prisoners that were there with him did not get. And he survived when others didn't survive. His abuse was uh, extraordinary. That word falls flat. But it, it, it was, uh, as I was reading through it, it's almost beyond imagination as I tried to put myself in his shoes. He even would beat himself so that his captors could not use him for propaganda films because his face was disfigured and they couldn't tell the, the, the public that they were treating the prisoners well by showing his face. When asked who didn't make it out, he said, oh, that's easy, the optimists. They weren't the ones who made it out. They were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they would say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving. And then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart, he said. This is a very important lesson in his words. He says, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose with the discipline to confront the most brutal, brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. I'll read that again. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Stockdale had no idea if or when he would go home again, and what he attributes his survival to is his ability to blend hard pragmatism, what is real right now, with an unwavering hope for the future. And it's what people or sociologists are now calling the Stockdale paradox. Jesus gave us, in his word, full disclosure. Hard pragmatism... This is what is true with unwavering hope. He said in John's gospel, in this world you'll have many trials. He would say in other places, if they hated me, they will hate you. But take heart. Don't let trouble build up a nest in your own heart. He said, I've overcome the world. I've overcome the ills of the world. In the passage that we just read at the beginning of this message, he said, believe in me. He said, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And so in the middle of all of the suffering, all of the disease, all of the proud kings and kingdoms and death, he has with purpose placed you and I here as a kingdom, like the song we just sang, as a kingdom of dependent priests who are mediating his presence as he sweeps more and more people up into redemption, up into his kingdom. 
What if we were to think of the kingdom of God or eternity with God, rather, as a movie? The movie hasn't released yet, but it's coming to a world near you. Think about what, what trailers and movies do. They're meant to give a sense of a movie. They're meant to give a foretaste of a movie. And so what these trailers and movies do is they weave together snippets, and if done well, they give the viewer a sense of what the movie will be like. Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live our lives in such a way now that will give a picture of what life will be like when Jesus returns so that others will want to be there. We're empowered by the Spirit of God living within us to begin, not perfectly, not by any stretch of the imagination, but to begin to live now as a picture, as a foretaste, as an outpost of the kingdom, showing what the kingdom of God is like so that others will be drawn in. We're to imagine life as it will be like when God heals and restores the world. We're to keep our eyes fastened and fixed on him and then live now as a preview of that coming attraction. I'm personally convinced, as I've been thinking about this, I'm convinced that all of the pain and the suffering and the hardship, the wrestling, the sweat, the tears, the twisted up guts, the racing minds, they serve good purposes well beyond our understanding. Like we learned last week, God's ways out of Isaiah 55 are higher than our ways, as the heavens are higher than the earth. And it seems in the way that I live and in my experience that I'm often blind, particularly in the moment, to what God is doing in me, because there is this nagging distrust of him. There's this nagging question, will you really see me through? Will you really answer my questions? Will you really provide for my needs? Will you really resolve my pain? And I want what I want in the way I want it, oftentimes. Just like a screaming child wants what they want in a moment. But as I'm thinking about this, in, in regards to, my own, to, to myself, I'm asking this question, is, he so, is God so near-minded, so even small-minded, that his main con concern should be my ease? or my temporal happiness? What if what he's really after, or a major part of what God is really after in you and I, is our dependence? This groaning world is part of my own making. If you were to see the story of my life, you would, you, you, you would probably hesitate to listen to my words right now. If you were to just base can, can this man be trusted based on my first 25 years of life? Adam declared independence from God in Eden, and I have added my contribution to his revolt. And all of you have as well. That's the message of the Bible. And so how can rebels live in harmony with God unless we understand the only way to peace is to live under his rule because we were created for him. We were created to live in relationship under his rule, not as dictators of our own world. And then we begin to recognize that Jesus, God himself, makes the way. He comes to bridge the gap for us to live under God's righteous rule right now. And so Jesus' promised return is this closing scene of God's rule over the hearts of men and women in this age. 
It signals this time, Jesus' return. It will signal the time when you and all of those that he is calling into his family have all come home to him. Every single person. And when he calls, when he comes, he'll call us into his rest with words of approval and acceptance that are not based on your work, but based on Christ's work. And the words that every single follower of Jesus, not based on your performance, but based on Jesus' performance and our faith aimed at him, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. Enter into his joy. Those words are aimed at every believer with your name on the front end of that sentence. Jesus' return will put our suffering to rest because we will be saved from the presence and the effect of sin entirely. And so until he returns, our hope, it's lodged on him like an anchor in a lake bed. Our hope is aimed at him. It's lodged on him. Other things in this world and in our culture are clamoring for our hope. Put your vote in me. I'll make everything right again. No. Like we are not so naive that a human or a political system or a social system can do things like that. We engage these systems with the mind of Christ. We are not subjects to political rulers. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So, Jesus' promised return is good news for his followers. But his promised return is also good news for the whole world. And I'll be brief here. I'm just going to let these texts speak for themselves. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. Paul writes, the creation, he's speaking of the whole world here. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free. What this means is that the physical world, the earth, the solar system, the cosmos, will be returned to glory. No more death, no more decay. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of the childbirth, in the pains of childbirth until now, Paul says. The very last book of your, of your Bible is Revelation. And the very last two chapters are Revelation 21 and 22. And the Apostle John, who's also recorded some of Jesus' words that I've read earlier in this message, he also says this. So just set your minds, just quiet your hearts, maybe even just close your eyes and just listen to. I'm going to read it slow. Just process it as I read. This is John foretelling the close of the age, the return of Christ. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, that is the one we're on, had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. 
And he, the risen Christ, who was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said to John, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then in Revelation 22, he goes on to say, The angel showed me the river of the water of life. This is what we are looking forward to. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of this tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in this city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. One short quote from C.S. Lewis, and then some application for us. C.S. Lewis, he says, hope is one of the theological virtues. Hope. It's a theological virtue. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. Looking forward to the world to come is something that we were meant to do. It doesn't mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history... So he's speaking about engagement in the here and now. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles who brought about on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages. The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth. Why? Precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have been so, become so ineffective in this world. So we are to set our hope on what is to come. And that should give us sure and confident courage as we engage the chaos and the aggression, as we engage the uncertainty, as we engage fear, as we engage the things that are happening in the world around us, our minds are on the Christ and the Christ who is to come. And so here's some application for us. We're not only meant to call to tell, we're not only meant to tell people about the good news of Jesus, but we're also meant to show by our presence, we're also meant to be in many ways good news to the people around us. So it's not all about gospel proclamation, but that always has to be there for a person to come to know Jesus Christ. But also Christians are called through our presence to show a watching world what the kingdom looks like. Our presence should be, in a, in a sense, good news to other people. And so each Christian is to live life by the power of God in such a way that gives people a preview of what life will be like when Jesus returns and when the whole world is renewed. And so what does that look like practically? There are all kinds of ways that that can work itself out practically. But how do we put this hope into play now? We can ask ourselves this question. What would bring others the greatest good and God the greatest honor? Begin to process that, that question. What would bring others in my vocation, in my space of life, in my parenting role or my student role or my, my hobbies, what would bring others the greatest good and God the greatest honor? For, for example, an actress 
could consider how to be a Christian by asking how she could do her job in a way that maximizes human joy, maximizes human beauty, magnifies the beauty and the creativity of God while she treats the people around her with the graciousness of God and the mercy of God and the patience of God. Or a sales manager might ask himself how he could do his job in a way that brings the greatest benefits to the most people so the whole community can flourish. His coworkers, those that he's leading on his team, but also those that he's selling a product to. Will this product benefit them? Am I being shysty in this? Am I looking out for a dollar bill and selling someone a bill of goods that they don't actually need? Am I treating the people around me with the grace of God, the generosity of God, the mercy of God, the honesty and integrity of God. These practical thought experiments, I just want to encourage you to, to just have these thought experiments. They can lead us to apply this in a very, very real way and, li- and begin living our lives as a preview of, of what life will be like when Jesus returns. So the gospel brings us incredible power. We have been saved from the penalty of sin because of Jesus' life and his death. We are being saved from the power of sin because of Jesus' resurrection and his glorification. And we will be, future tense, saved from the presence of sin entirely because of Jesus' promised return. And so the gospel has real, serious implication and application for us today. Pray with me. Father, would you, through your spirit, help us to apply all that's been said this morning Wake us up. Activate our minds and our hearts in such a way that causes us to engage your word, engage the community around us where we, just, where we feel stuck, where we feel like we need some counsel, where we ask people around us, identify people around us that we love and trust, who will give us good godly counsel. Would we go to them and be seekers of change and transformation? Holy Spirit, speak to your people this morning and help us in Jesus' name. Amen.